Hello, welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour, brought to you by the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School for Public International Affairs and the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies. I'm your host, Adam Dietrich. Before we get to our interview today with the Eisenhower Fellows from the U.S. Army War College, I wanted to have a quick programming discussion with you all. Uh, it's been great doing the podcast over these last few months, and we're going to be changing the format a little bit. We feel that the interviews are really where more of a value of this podcast comes in, and not so much on our panel discussions. So we're going to change from doing a two-segmented structure to doing one longer interview with our guests. Now, Sometimes it will just be myself talking to the guests. Sometimes there will be several other of our Ridgeway students, but we feel that this best serves you, the listener, to provide you with the most interesting original content that we can provide. I appreciate you all uh, tuning into us every month, and I hope that this was a very good and enlightening episode with you. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Adam Dietrich again, and I'm sitting here with two lieutenant colonels from the U.S. Army War College, both Eisenhower Fellows. We have Aaron Sadusky, and we have... David Short. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. All right. Uh, I feel like I have to like open with this question and like hit you guys hard right from the get-go. So it's 2020. We have the most like educated population in the United States. Why does the officer corps need to exist as it is today? Like, come on. De- defend yourselves. First, or you may take first swing at this. You can go ahead and take it. So I would say in any large organization, you still have to have leaders, right? And, and no matter what challenge you face, there's still someone that's got to provide purpose, direction, and leadership to an organization to try to get us to accomplish our goals. So within the Army construct, that is the purpose of the officers. And when we talk about whether that's at the tactical level, getting our basic level of platoon to, to, take a, or to accomplish a tactical task, all the way to our senior general officers that are looking longer term in terms of what are the next threats on the horizon, what are the requirements that we need to another resource the organization to meet those threats, what is the equipment that we need to procure to make sure that our army is well equipped to meet those threats. That is kind of what officers do. Well, yeah, but I mean, does it need to exist as a, a stratified system where, where someone comes in? You know, say, you know, they get a bachelor's degree and they go to OCS or they happen to be in an ROTC program or maybe one of the academies, but that delineated path. Like, I mean, I I don't think anyone's denied that we need to have leaders or even that we need to have a a dual system of subject matter experts, senior senior enlisted versus officers. But I mean, it's it's pretty classist. I mean, like this goes back to when like officers were the only people that knew how to read, like a little modernization here, guys. Well, I mean, I I think the point that, being brought up with the, at least from a functional standpoint, uh, you have the, the authority piece, right? Where mm-hmm. From a position standpoint, regardless of the dual chains, you've got uh, the authority piece where somebody, you, you have, that authority must reside um, in, and for military authority and that command authority in order to be able to, for the military to function as an organization. So I, I think that's an aspect that you, that has to be considered um, from a military profession standpoint. Um, you know, discussion on, you know, whether it, it needs to be the current system that exists now or some variation thereof, um, you know, maybe, um, maybe might be getting at, you know, at least in special forces, how there's a little bit more blurring of those lines in, 
at least a special, you know, unique uh, niche community. But I, I think you still, even there, you have that. Um, there's a person with the authority in the position because that's where the authority is derived from for it to be able to make uh, um, to make a decision and then to, to carry it out and have the uh, the approval necessary for it, depending on whatever echelon that that is at. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a little bit of this conversation earlier about career tracks in the Army and so forth. And, I mean, I, I personally see it a little bit as this idea of we don't know what you're going to be good at yet before you join the institution. So, you know, at what point do we know that just because this guy has a bachelor's degree that he's going to be a leader, fulfill that officer role versus like maybe once he gets there, he really wants to, you know, be a trainer or to be, you know, someone that, uh, you know, is that, you know, subject matter expert in whatever his MOS is like we make that termination very early and like the lines are a little bit different with like say enlisted and officer and like you know, maneuver warfare but if you look at the way that army treats pilots warrant officer or officer you come in as a lieutenant and you want to fly planes well you might figure out that like you want to fly planes more than you want to be managing people in command and you didn't really know that option ahead of time or you didn't know how much you'd learn to fly and so you fly um and i I'm not saying you guys are going to fix this. We're just <laughs> we're just kind of going through this right now. Uh, but I mean, that speaks to broader reforms that the army is doing in terms of career management. Would you guys like? Now that I've had my little monologue soapbox here, do you want do you want to go into that conversation we were having a bit earlier about how the army is addressing these manning concerns and career management issues? Sure. So I, I think before, we're glad to have that conversation. I think one of the things that one of the things you brought up, though, is, is like in any professional organization, there has to be some sort of accreditation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and currently for officership, that's one of three ways of commissioning, whether that's through a service academy, an ROTC program, or through through OCS. And and that's just the way that the law is written, that there is a, a baseline accreditation of having a bachelor's degree. Now, remember, mm-hmm. through the OCS, that doesn't mean you have to have it to start out. So there's other venues to, to get there. Just... I think I think well I, I think my point wasn't that we should have officers without bachelor's degrees. I think my point is more people have that minimum education level now than ever before, and it, it's becoming less of a delineation factor of like I don't know how many other college E4s we had in my unit that you know in theory alongside like our lieutenant like if that's the factor that like that doesn't hold up as much anymore as a reason. And you could say other things well like he you know it's a rigorous process of applying and getting through, and like he did his time somewhere else or like. There are ways, and like most people prove themselves. Like this isn't just like a me like wagging my finger at like the elite or anything like that. I I, I just I, I think it really ties into career management and who's right for what job and seeing maybe the way that we do things right now, even on this whole like, you know, institutional level, like we need to think about addressing that. Well, and I kind of would the second part of your question where you're going towards is, is where, where are we going in terms of talent management or where are we going in terms of that? Yeah, yeah, that please, please, please and, tell me. And I think one of the things when we were previously kind of talking about issues that are facing the, the Army is we're moving away from the industrial age career model, very structured, very up or out, and more to a true talent management process so that you don't become just fixated in one area if you have other skills for the organization to do that. Right now, they're, they're doing that primarily in the officer corps, mm-hmm. but the, the goal is to be able to do that here across the Army so that mm-hmm. for an individual that comes in, let's say, is enlisted as an infantryman, does their initial tour, but decides, hey, I really like the Army, but maybe being an infantryman is not what I want to do for the rest of my 
time serving our nation, there's other career opportunities that they can then go do. Because at the end of the day, we need quality people across the organization in every job. I mean, that's what makes us a, a successful army. And we're trying to move towards making sure that we get a better fit to the individual for, for the skill set that they, that they actually can fulfill and then can help the organization. And I, I think Adam, to get you know, um, you know, not, not to go all the way back, but you know, the the question of bachelors and masters. There's certainly, I think you could, you know, have a discussion of you know, do you move the goalposts uh, to the further to the right, further right, where now the baseline requirement no longer is a requisite as a bachelor's, but now it's a master's. Um, and I would say that the talent management task force, not that that has truly been considered, but there. There were efforts to take a look at for captains to make sure, and this is on the officer side, and not you know on the enlisted side, but uh, for officers, to, uh, captains to have uh, take the GRE uh, for a master's and different initiatives uh, such as that. I do I is the Army there yet? Uh, you know, no, not yet. Clearly, not with the policies and the regulations that are in place. Uh, but it does get to you know a broader discussion on the reform of. How talent is managed from you know what you know Aaron's talking about and uh, the points that he brought up to everything from you know sabbaticals can is it more fluid can you come and go and leave um, and pick up where you left off depending upon what your life situation is um, can you move into another career field at with less barriers um, and you know on the officer or an, or enlisted side and uh, I think uh, there's a lot of different aspects and um, perspectives that, that folks are looking at for that. And just in terms of sometimes we take it for granted that we know what these <laughs> organizations are. For your listeners, the Army Talent Management Task Force is a relatively new organization that's looking at how do we adapt our career model for the you know the the competition for talent across the nation and how are we changing our models to do that. And I encourage any of your listeners that they want to is that you literally can Google Army Talent Management Task Force and that brings up a page that kind of talks about what this initiative is, some of the changes that, that Congress has changed in terms of to allow us to not only recruit differently, but also retain better talent for the, for the long haul. No, that's great. Uh, thank you guys for, for enlightening me and our listeners, kind of like how that process is unfolding. This next area is like sort of similar, but like, so obviously right now we're, we're talking about uh, recruitment and retention issues with, with the all-volunteer force, like as it exists today. And like, how do you couple, modify, so forth, that with an idea that, that's gaining more popularity? It's not necessarily mandatory public service, but building this idea of national public service and, and how um, that, you know, could change the, these systems. Like if everyone had to do, like if you assessed people and then there were people that do like their year of public service, like in the military, maybe that is the first step before you're considered like going to become an officer or you know I did my time in doing this but like when I enlist I want to do a different MOS to go to the like professional aspect of it like what what, what parts of that are people thinking about today in your line of work so well first off my personal opinion is that I like the all-volunteer force as it is um, because that way because by it being free someone has to raise the right hand take an oath to the Constitution and say I want to join this organization which is inherently different than what we had under a constricted force back in back in the 70s and earlier for Vietnam and, and previous previous wars. Now having said that, I do personally believe that we should really consider looking at a year of national service for graduating seniors 
for a year, similar to like almost like a gap year that we've seen in, in other countries. Now, what I, I want to make sure that we're always clear on when I have this conversation with audiences is national service does not have to equate to mandatory military service. Right. First and foremost, if you want to join as a means of volunteering, absolutely. And I think we look at what are our models, what are our contracts. They, anything short of a year, sometimes there's socialization change. Does it happen? Does it occur effectively mm-hmm. or not? That's that's if you want to go that route. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a lot of space where our nation, one, we've talked about how they're pulling apart. We're um, isolated. Where do we get our news? Where do we live? And there's this less contact that we that we have going on. And I think the idea of national service allows us to kind of get back to that mm-hmm. in where we have and understand where people from other parts of the country interact. Does it happen in the military? Absolutely. That's obviously where we recruit from. But I think in the national service space, a year of national service, there are other areas where they we need help. We need help in our hospitals. We need help in our schools. We help in you know, storm-stricken areas, the Peace Corps-type models. I just, I think that there's enough room and demand out there where that idea of national service is is, is something that our nation should consider. No, no, I, I completely agree. And, and yes, you're right that even in almost any model that would be realistically modeled for this, it would be mostly non-military service. A, what, like 30% of Americans like could even qualify physically and or education-wise or mentally to, to serve in the armed services for, for what we need. We need highly skilled people. Um, and there's also those, you know, conscientious objectors or maybe even a slightly lighter term, but like that would not fit military service like as necessary. But there, there is an issue with, one of my issues I think with the all-volunteer force and the way it works is that we the idea of like creating heroic communities, uh, I did air quotes there, but I mean, that that's a term that's thrown around. It's like, it creates a great deal of separation between the public and those that serve. And, you know, you've seen it in like all kinds of statements of like the, the sentiment is like, well, they're volunteers. They know what they get into. Like I, I have a hard feeling that voters and Congress would abdicate war power so willingly when it's them and their neighbors who are definitely going to be involved next time there's a conflict. Uh, again, like these are like not necessarily decisions that are made like at this level, but I, I think that there's something to say that, Right now, I think it's like 8% of the United States has served in the armed forces. And that includes our World War II vets that were drafted and still alive, the Vietnam vets that were drafted and still alive. So that's, we haven't even reached the minimum yet of what the all-volunteer looks like as a percentage of the population. Uh, and I, I think that that's a little concerning. Uh, like, I think it was uh, Max Brooks, the author, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times the other day, and it was like a, a future op-ed talking about in the future. But there was a great quote from it. Um, here, let me see. Let me just pull this up right here. Here we go. In it, he's talking about, it's the hypothetical situation where the army was totally privatized. But he says this, we might have told them, thank you for your service, but what we really meant was better you than me. I think there's a real, again, like not that we need to institute a draft or have everyone give out large portions of their time necessarily, but... There's definitely concern with the idea that the military and the burdens that that community carries, those families of habitual people who sign up to serve, is becoming very distant from the rest of the country. I'm on a soapbox again. <laughs> yeah. I, so, so you, you touched on a couple things there that I that I that resonate with me. The first thing is is that not since President Lyndon Johnson was in office have we had a um, 
a head of state that has either had a a child or a, a son-in-law, daughter-in-law actually serve in in service. And and when you take that forward in terms of what, when I hear you say like elite institutions, you know, at one point it was almost 50% of Princeton's graduating class served in the nation. And there is a study out there that said by the either late 80s or 90s, it was like nine out of their graduating class served. And that was the highest out of all the Ivy League institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is that when you see this gap that starts to emerge between where elites that serve and those that don't serve, well, now you, you start to gain or a, a trust issue starts to emerge. And, and, and that's problematic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, our military is representative of all the country, not just following what my father or mother's footsteps were, or just from the south or southwest part of the country. Mm-hmm. Harvard's recently published a study that says for 18 to 29-year-olds, the trust in the military has actually dropped below 50%. As a career military officer, that's, that is concerning to me. Now, now, overall, when you take the whole nation, the nation's still above 70%, but that takes into account the demographics that you were talking about earlier, World War II and Greatest Generation, all the way up to our parents and, and so forth. But those are those are interesting and kind of concerning trends to me because now if when you when you don't trust in your organization, you have less people willing to do that. You already have certain demographics that say that's for other people, not us. Mm-hmm. And that that is problematic. So going back to your point about national service, one of the ways I think that that why that's one of the things that I've talked about in the in the paper that I wrote was this is maybe a way to do that because not everyone wants to be in the military and that, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I still think the idea of everyone kind of giving back to our nation that has given a lot to us mm-hmm. is a good thing. That kind of what, that's what oh, unites us, not, not divides us. And so I completely agree. Like, I mean, you have certain, like you have services that already exist that could provide that like AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, things like that. You know, maybe we could see a new version of the civilian conservation corps that, you know, we got this climate change thing. I'm, I'm sure there's things that, like, you know, we can do in terms of, like, you know, helping, you know, replant forests or taking care of, like, our national parks and stuff like that that, you know, would be a great experience to complement this idea of, like, public service. Yeah, Adam, and the other thing I think for your listeners to kind of understand, usually, like, there's, there's two usually big arguments against this, right? <laughs> One is terms of cost or, like, what, or what do I get out of it? Mm-hmm. And two, the idea of mandatorying any American to do something like that, the, that, the, that they owe anything to the nation. That's sometimes an anathema. Yeah. But I, what I would also tell you is, is that the, the courts kind of say otherwise, actually, in that they've struck down or they've ruled that national service does not is not the same thing as forced service. So mm-hmm. so when people go, well, you can't make me do anything or that's, you know, that's forced servitude. We outlawed mm-hmm. slavery like Although it seems kind of extreme, that's that. There's a legal argument there, but the courts have, have said otherwise. You have jury duty, you know. I mean, the the selective service is like not been used, but it is still still in the books and is still entirely legal. So there there are like processes here. You're right, absolutely. All right, let's maybe let's like shift gears a little bit here. We can kind of move around. So um, the army is going through a period of change. Like, how do you feel about the army's modernization strategy and how that aligns with the the NDS? Like, we're in a big shift you want to talk that a little bit based on your yeah i think i can uh weigh in on that i think so adam i I think from uh the army's modernization priorities when you look at you know the top the top five you know the big one uh top one being you know aaron probably talked more about precision long-range fires and you've got air and missile defense right at uh i think number five right at right below the network um 
those are those are all pr priorities that are you know derived right from from strategy from uh, all the way on up, uh, and I, I think they're right. They're they're on the mark to uh, look at how what's the future operating concept with you know with things like multi-domain operations and uh, what are rivals and competitors doing in the strategic environment right now. Um, uh, it, it has it, it has certainly changed. There's been an observed change in the environment, and uh, there are folks out there competing that are that in some sense are, are doing this right now. And uh, the Army modernization is to align with that so that we have the right capability and forces, both the right force structure and the capability to be able to conduct uh, things like uh, multi-domain operations. What does that mean? That means you know it's a nice buzzword, right? But like, what does that actually mean? Is you know, can you, uh, you know, for a certain type of platform or force that is, you know, conducting a, a mission or operation and affect multiple domains at the same time. And I'll, I'll just, this is just my own personal concept of it. an easy way to understand it is a great example of it is an Aegis cruiser, right? A destroyer out on the surface. Uh, that one platform and those, those sailors on that ship uh, and, you know, I'm Give them a lot of cheers to the Navy here, so you know, don't roll over on me. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're very, we're we're very It's a joint force. It's yeah. a joint force. But um, you know, really, they—it's they, a concept where you know you've got a Aegis cruiser that you know from um, uh, countering uh, surface fires and threats to the ship, they have systems and procedures uh, to be able to do that, as well as at the same time at the subsurface level. Um, um, they can uh, they have a capability uh, against mines and then as well from the air be it an air breathing threat or an incoming missile uh, they're able to simultaneously with those sailors and those forces be able to affect through um, multiple domains uh, at the surface uh, subsurface as well as uh, in the air at the same time in some instances both space and cyber depending on what's going on now how do you take that to the next level where you're able to integrate and interoperate those forces among um, you know, different uh, domains to be able to have achieve an effect on the battlefield, I think is where um, it gets a little bit more complex and some things that conceptually need to turn into, um, you know, reality through war fighting and, and different tests and exercises. I mean, at what level right now do we really see multi-domain operations? Like, is that something that's on the, the battalion level, the brigade level, the, you know, the core level? Like, where, where is the Army's goal in trying to implement this? The short answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for everything. All, for all of those. It, be, because going back to the modernization is a result of we have competitors, we have threats that have looked at how we have fought and how we historically have fought for the air-land battle. Mm -hmm. And now they're looking to how did they evolve their weapon systems or their focus on defense to gain an advantage over that? Or how do they defeat the way that we've traditionally employed force against, against an enemy? And, and we've also then mortgaged some of our modernization efforts previously because the budget only goes so far to do certain things. And, it, and we were focused on, continue to be focused on operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever else the nation asks us to be. But at some point, we have to kind of look at, we have we, the pendulum's now swinging back towards large-scale combat operations. We, we acknowledge that we're looking at large, um, great power competitors again, and then how do we need to modernize our force to... To shrink that gap, or to to make sure that, or to make sure that we stay and have a qualitative military advantage over those competitors. And then, as far as going back to your multi-domain operations, I think to me that's one that's a new way of training our forces or evolving our forces to now 
make sure that we maintain that advantage because it's no longer, it really is no longer not not even a linear battlefield, but it's not even just a, a two-dimensional battlefield. It's a three-dimensional battlefield. I mean, like Dave can speak to like, you know, we're it's not just ground, it's not just air, it's cyber, it could be space. And all of a sudden, how do you conceptualize or how do you frame that in terms of creating some sort of doctrine, some way of how are we going to fight and compete in that space? And I think what we've seen is that's the genesis of multi-domain operations. It, it varies by services. Everyone has a little bit different flavor on that, but that's that's just that's 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 the next evolution. No, no, and I, I completely agree. I, I think that that accurately depicts like where we're going in terms of like what it takes to to win. Uh, I, I you can look at the way that the the Russians like they're what we, we, it terms it differently. They hybrid warfare, but I mean I think that really is ultimately the same thing of combining conventional great forces, cyber attacks, so forth, to, you know, achieve an end. And to go back to the idea of great power competition, does the army think that great power competition will translate to high intensity, large conflicts like we saw with, you know, the world wars? Or because, you know, the world is more connected and it's competition, doesn't that also just mean more opportunities for low intensity conflicts? And which one is the army ready to fight, and can it do both? You want to take a shot at first? Or yeah, uh, so uh, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, when you look at the spectrum and the continuum of conflict, from competition to conflict, that uh, really the national, the, the defense strategy and the military strategy is to prepare to do both, right? To be able to operate on that continuum from either end of the spectrum. Uh, Frequency-wise, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, from applying resources, it's it's be prepared to be able to do both, and certainly, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to predict of which is going to be more frequent than the other. Right. I mean, if past I mean, no, no one can really say that. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, past this precedent, sure, there's been more low intensity, right? And I I think that um, really that uh, having that capability though to be able to do um, both is is critical. Um, it seems like a large mission set, right? But it's, it also means having those right, the right size force and the right capable force to be able to be able to be able to do things across that continuum, um, where and when needed, right? And there's can we do that with like every unit being able to do every mission, or are we going to need to specialize? We we talked a little bit about how the the SVABs are one version of that, you know, instead of reducing the combat power of one unit by taking its leadership away to do these training missions. We've developed a new model that is built specifically to do that, and we can retain our combat brigades at full ready list levels. Are we seeing something where maybe we have units that are trained to do high intensity conflict and units that are more specialized for low intensity? Well, I think we've I think we've had that right. I mean, when we look back in terms of what traditional armor infantry unit in the conventional army was versus traditional special forces, not direct action unit, but more of the foreign internal defense model. I think we've had that in 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 the coin fight that that evolved both in Iraq and Afghanistan lines became a little bit more blurred some of that's just based on demand exceeding some supply of those skill sets and and so because of that we've seen our forces kind of some of the, some of our traditional mission, mission missions have blurred a little bit I mean like in terms of thus the SFAB concept I, I think what you always kind of go back to is you got to re-anchor ourselves 
both what Dave was talking about and you've brought up is like the national defense strategy, right? And what's number one? Protect the American homeland, right? So so when you say is the pendulum swinging back towards great, you know, high intensity conflict, we hope not. Yeah. But, but at the generally end of the day, bad for everyone. But, like, no one but, actually wants but we have to ensure that our military is ready and capable to meet that threat to ensure that our way of life endures. Like, mm. you know, and then the second the second one's after that with remaining the preeminent power in the world, ensuring our balance of power stays in the American interest. Well, in order to try to maintain that, that's where I think you see we can't ignore that we have competitors out there, whether it's the Russians, whether it's the Chinese whether it's whatever next country that or non-state actor that is a threat to our way of life, then we have to adapt or, or grow accordingly. I, I just I think some of it's like we have to be an adaptive force as well because because our enemies and our competitors get our vote. The second thing I would say is is that the part that the new normal, this hybrid, I think you have to be careful in terms of what terms of art you use in terms of saying is hybrid warfare the same thing as multi-domain operations. Not necessarily. I think when you when your listeners and when you're talking about hybrid warfare, some of that remember is like potentially how do we compete below the threshold mm-hmm. of open armed conflict versus multi domain operations has a part of that, but there's definitely an absolute kinetic part of a force on force. There's a force on force aspect of multi domain operations. Right, right. I I've seen it used different ways, and I I tend to prefer to think of it in the domain, but it has been used in some literature as more parallel to gray zone action. So Right. And and, and look, and, I mean and you follow this, like <laughs> you know, the military at large can be its own worst enemy. We don't need to it's argue about author. definitions. It's a new author. Sometimes it's you do new... it all the time. <laughs> right. But but I think but I think what as we're trying to educate folks that are not as familiar with those, like mm-hmm. sometimes it's important that we just, hey, this is what this term is and this is how we define it. So that when we deviate from that then, then folks kind of go, okay, they're now talking about something different, and it's not just a buzzword. I'm not saying that you, you're doing that. I just say, like, I think we that, as military officials sometimes have to make sure that we clearly define our, our terms so that people are kind of going, okay, that's that's a, that's jargon for what they do, but this is what it means. Yeah. for Acronym person. soup is definitely an issue in this field. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, to get back to the, the question about how the, you know, our specialized units, I do think, uh, obviously, there's a... Uh, uh, been an initiative with the the security forces assistant brigades, the SVABs, multi-domain units, right? That there's been this. Um, we do need some of those highly specialized units. Now, I think uh, for at least for the army, right? I mean, even even an SVAB, if things uh, go to armed conflict on that level of that continuum, and then go to high intensity in, in armed conflict, that uh, you have a ready-made structure there, right? That can uh, assume more people. Uh, if you need to grow very quickly, um, so there's there's benefits and uh, advantages uh, to that, but obviously it's for a very specific mission to not lose that uh, counterinsurgency uh, knowledge, uh, techniques and procedures that have been gained over the last uh, you know 18, 19 years, and then you have multi-domain units. You know you have a, a you know I think there's two of them right now with battalion you know battalion size element that's got a company of uh, Intel, Signal, uh, Cyber. Um, all, all in one organization um, and space that is meant to be able to enable the joint force or the maneuver force on the battlefield that so they can compete with things like electronic warfare, uh, be it in the cyberspace in the, uh, domain, to be able to enable that joint force to be able to accomplish its uh, mission, whether that's uh, uh, 
um, anti-access or, or what, whatever mission comes up, but you, the same would go, right? You mm. assume that they would, uh, whatever mission is given in either uh, environment or any type of uh, either competition or conflict that um, just like other units are able to conduct humanitarian assistance and, and those type of missions that there'd be a range of missions that they're able to accomplish given their, uh, um, given how they're organized in their mission. So, I mean, again, we're, we're in the, the army's in the beginning stage of figuring out how this would all work with the, the separate units that could attach themselves. Is there any effort being put to make sure that the, the local like, combat commanders like understand how to use this asset and like how to integrate it into the, their new teams for that kind of deployment? I mean, I, hopefully, <laughs> I, I I do know that uh, the these units uh, I'll speak specifically to uh, multi domain units have been exercised and tested um, in different war games as well as um, a- actual um, joint exercises to see uh, the ways in which to employ them and, and use these uh, units and you know take them from the concept the theoretical into uh, an actual practical you know do you um, you know I I've actually worked with one in which they have. Space company as, as part of these units came out and uh, jammed GPS signals as, as an example to provide that type of effect when you operate in a degraded type environment. Now that's a small you know sliver of a whole host of mission sets and tasks um, that need to be uh, that that type of unit could have an effect. But uh, that that's where they're working through as far as on the test side and the exercise side of how do you take that concept and put it actually into practice that can enable that joint force to be able to accomplish. Something. And I mean, I, you know, although sometimes slow, we are a learning organization, right? And so we have we have a new skill set, and someone's going to be based on how do commanders employ, and then how do they share that information? What these what these organizations can do, and where where do we still need to fine tune them? And some of that kind of comes back to whether that's internal looks, but also external looks, right? I mean, in terms of when you're when you're employing them and you're the commander of that organization, sometimes you have a tendency to see down and in, but sometimes the organization can then, from the outside or academics, can kind of go, hey, we see that you've developed this, this organization, but based on our re- literature, there's still some gaps here. I mean, and that information has to be shared. So some of it's also, it's testing, right? It's research right. and development, just in a different type of organization. And the, the idea is then we have to share and see how do we continue to evolve or, or tweak this to make, because one of the things you said is at the end of the day, our, our customers are the American public, but our customers also those combatant commanders that are out there that what do they need to to meet their theater campaign plans and what do they need for them to compete or to offset advantages that, that our competitors have. So I'm sitting down here with an artillery officer and an air defense artillery officer. Can we talk about hypersonics? What, what what do you guys think about that? Is it is it uh is it like the greatest thing ever? Is it you know a bunch of you know does it not really matter at all? Like like let's let's get these thoughts. So first off, I think I think I'm pretty impressed by them, right? I mean the idea of how fast and just how the idea of um, directed energy and some of the, where where technology is taking us, I think is is pretty impressive. However, there's also Pandora's box aspect, right? I mean, it still needs to be something that's proportional. It's something that mean like that does it accomplish its mission? And and the other question is, is at the end of the day, who's in charge of these, right? Like, and I think that that is something that we can develop them, but it's also the the employment aspect of them. Um, Dave, you want to speak on the, the other thing? We, you know, although 
pretty G whiz. Everyone's seen the Top Gun two, you know, uh, trailer. That movie looks dope. <laughs> but, but at the end, with like the, I, I even asked some like Air Force buddies, I was like, "What is that thing at the end?" They're like, "No, that's Hollywood." But I mean, but this idea of what they are, but some of the other things, I think there are, there are some classification issues that that do exist. So like, in terms of, but is the is the technology there? Yes, and and some of that is, um, again, there's there's a competition space out there that that we have to meet if we're going to have something continue to have a qualitative advantage over them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely this, the environment's changed. That's just another instance of where the strategic environment, uh, you know, things have been changed and, uh, it's, uh, you know, you either, you either play or you don't, right. I mean, you, you, um, there are rivals and competitors out there who have, uh, committed, uh, to this type of technology and then it becomes a buzzword and everybody wants to get in on it. Right. But it's, uh, hypersonics really, I mean, we've, we've been able to, we have, we have stuff that can go hypersonic and go five, you know, five times greater than the speed of sound. And, uh, that's going hypersonics, not a problem. We right. have platforms that can do that. Um, really what it, it really becomes from the science side, it becomes a, a maneuverability piece, um, at, um, at speed and for at least on when it comes to defenses, it does potentially become a game changer if it's done at scale, right? Uh, because from a, a missile defense uh, perspective, uh, we've at this point been able to develop the capabilities necessary uh, to, to defeat um, traditional ballistic incoming threats. Um, but now when you induce uh, things like, a, a, I don't know, call it leap ahead technology, something like hypersonics, um, it does um, present problems and challenges uh, to be able to defeat. It's not that it can't be done, it just starts... Uh, becoming a game changer about how you uh, approach it. Um, now, whether uh, whether or not folks have a, a, as good as they say uh, that technology, um, you know, that's based on assessments and you know uh, where they're they're actually at with it. But for HTVs, it certainly is uh, ha has the potential. Uh, whether it's used, you know, whether it's used offensively to strike and penetrate defenses, or whether you're trying to defend against it uh, and shoot it down. Uh, presents unique challenges and either on the employment side or on the defense side. What do you think of hypersonics? I think, I mean, it's easy to kind of go, hey, for the like, I mean, because you look I, at the space. I, I think it can be a little bit of both. Like you said, it, on the conventional side for, for missile defense, it, it poses a big issue. And it also, I would typically associate it with, you're, you're, we're talking about farther extended range of fires. And there's so many pendulums in this conversation, it doesn't matter. But there's also a conversation that's out there about whether fires or maneuver takes priorities in a world like as fires technology gets better and more advanced which one supports the other in this hypothetical world that's a whole thing i think in strategic deterrence it's actually not as much of an issue as we think because the united states relies on our nuclear triad to deter nuclear threats so the only like the russians have a new hypersonic glide vehicle warhead on their new icbm that really doesn't matter because our missile defense is not built around that we rely on deterrence. So it is flashy. If that proliferates to a, a different country where we don't have that strategic de deterrence in place, or if that, when that gets applied to conventional issues or, or even low, low yield weapons, we're, we're starting to see some areas, but it's not a, I, I personally don't think it's big, shiny. Oh my God, what are we going to do about this? But it is, it is a new challenge and a new thing to kind of work around. Um, yeah, and, and that kind of le leads me into the, the nuclear question. I know that's not necessarily either of your areas, but today the United States announced we have a new sea-launched, low-yield 
platform that we're going to do. I, I don't think in any way that this will be a big part of our nuclear strategy. It's kind of more that we're like entering this state space and maybe it's going to give us room to negotiate in, in future if we ever go back to arms control <laughs> ideas. Um, but, but do you guys have any thoughts about a somewhat, uh, not just modernizing the nuclear arsenal, but like expanding in a way, and particularly into like non-strategic weapons, which both Russia and China are... Uh, our strategic competitors rely heavily on and talk about. So what I, where I would come down on that personally is, is we signal when we develop things for the public as a means for, de- for evolved deterrence as well, right? It, that we have this capability. Just because we have it doesn't mean we should use it. Right. And in, in some of that is, is that since you share like, hey, the Russians and Chinese have demonstrated they've developed it, so, okay, that we have it as well. Now, the, I think the, the, the question becomes, as you have tactical nuclear weapons or low-yield weapons, mm-hmm. what becomes the threshold for using them, yeah. right? I mean, to me, like, fundamentally, I think we have to think through that carefully. There's an ethical piece of this. I mean, at the end of the day, there's only one nation in the world that's ever used an atomic weapon against another country, right? Mm-hmm. So, so as we... As we develop these weapons that may have lower yields, there's still an effect. There, there's still this, and there's still some ethical questions that you have to think through in terms of what is the level at which we would use them. Is it a first use weapon? Is it only a defense weapon? And then, and that obviously varies based on state actor. I mean, different countries have very clear guidelines in terms of how they look at their use of nuclear weapons. But I think we have to be careful of just because oh, it's only a a low right. yield nuclear weapon. Wait a second, we're still splitting an atom here. Like they're, they're, we're talking about a significant amount of energy, and and then who makes that call, mm-hmm. right? I mean, who is the who is the decision authority on that? And and to me, some, yeah, some people would argue like for tactical weapons to be used efficiently, it would they would be combat commanders. Like that was the issue that we looked at in, in the Korean War, and then we were like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Like this is a bad idea. But like ultimately, you would think, and not just for the United States, for for countries like. Pakistan or India or Russia, you're going to have to move that authority out of, you know, the, the equivalent of the Oval Office if you're going to use those timely. And that's not great. <laughs> so, right. So, I mean, and Dave, you can, please feel free to chime in if you, how you feel on this too. But like, to me, it's like, that's the, we have a capability, mm-hmm. but we also have to make sure that we have the policy or the decision making or how are we going to, you know, who gets to make the call to use that so that, we're not in the throes of a, of a crisis when we're trying to determine whether or not to do something. We have the system in place to make sure that if, if, we, if, we, if the call is made to, to use this type of weapon system, we have the right system in place to make sure that we're doing them correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree with, the, with, with you on the, you know, the employment and the authorities piece, right? Um, that that is absolutely critical um, when, you, when you talk about the development of some of these capabilities. Um, does it change the overall strategic calculus? You know, no, right? Probably not, most likely. But um, it, why are those capabilities being developed? And I think it just goes back to one of those reoccurring themes that um, I, I personally keep seeing, which is that th- this environment has changed and there's a reason for the development of those capabilities because um, there are uh, rivals and competitors out there who have... Uh, developed uh, a, a specific capability that now is, is causing a shift in, in that direction. And that 
there does need to be some you know prudence as far as making sure that that strategic terms and that calculation is not changed. And I, I think Aaron brings up the you know really two great considerations, specifically the authorities piece and the employment piece, because that uh, even those can have an effect on the, the calculus itself. Yeah, uh, David, I'm going to start moving this one to you. But sell me on Space Force. Like, why does it need to be a separate branch, or maybe why doesn't it need to be? I mean, it's already a thing, so like we're not going to go back. But yeah. let, let me get your perspective as an Army space guy. Sure. Yeah. So, um, why does it need to be a separate branch of service? Well, you know, it's you know, it's already the the newest, the youngest branch of you know, six service. It's the youngest branch of service, and uh, it's also the smallest, right? Uh, uh, potentially they you know depending on how things work out with policy formulation but you know you, you know you're looking at a, a set of cadre of uh, uh, Air Force Space folks anywhere between six and eight thousand moving over to the Space Force but uh, re- really it comes down to uh, one of the themes I just hit on is that 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 environment um, you know has changed that domain where we were um, for decades um, operating uncontested um, and in an environment um, that um, we had relative freedom of action in, uh, that we were dominant in um, for the U.S. Um, has now, um, it's now been contested. There's competition, a lot of competition, and it started to become congested, not just from rivals or competitors, but even the commercialization of space, right? So you've got a lot of actors uh, in, that, in that environment. And because it's changed, um, you know, it's you, you show up and, you know, you either play the game or you don't. You know, if you get pushed uh, in a certain direction, um, you know, if you just ignore it, then your vulnerabilities can get exploited. Um, and you have to develop the not just the requisite capabilities, which is an important part that the Space Force will have, things like the Space Development Agency and developing the capabilities to defend and, if need be, you know, deter and then, if need be, you know, conduct offensive operations in space. But... Um, to be able to do the warfighting piece and have the force structure necessary to do that. Having its own service um, enables that from the, the ability to man, train, and equip those forces to be able to do the warfighting aspect. It, it also gives a, an organization the, the opportunity to have a culture that's, that's focused on that. You're not going to have a, an issue of like the pilot mafia or the bomber mafia or anything like that the Air Force like, has traditionally had. You're also not going to get your budget stolen by F-35 issues you know, in your separate service. Uh, it was very funny though when they, they announced the first picture of the the Space Force uniform and it was you know multicams with blue name tape and like the internet hated that for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you know the Space Force had a rough uh, rough uh, establishment and start transformation with you know uh, you know one with you know uh, coming out of the gate with uh, you know camouflage operational camouflage pattern uh, uniforms and a lot a lot of memes and a lot of. Uh, a lot of trending on Twitter about uh, the defending the the uh, moon of uh, in, in Star Endor in Star Wars, right? Uh, but the you know the reality is that you know that's just uh, as you know the Space Force has developed its culture and its identity. Right now, they've just uh, assumed the you know mostly probably because of cost measures and just the ability to get out there is. The OCP uniform that that's in place that the Army and Air Force both use right now. And, I mean, I'm glad they just didn't spend another couple million dollars to develop their own pattern to hang out in the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, and, and although it created some interesting memes, I mean, it still got press. Someone's yeah. talking about it, right? Yes. So yeah. if, if someone who has no idea what Space Force was goes, "Wait, what? 
Oh, I mean, and although, you know, tongue in cheek, there is, you know, we can't laugh at ourselves like, okay, you know, what yeah. kind of organization are we sometimes? However, now it helps kind of get the idea of what is Space Force and more people are asking about it. So maybe. I really thought the turnaround with that was really funny because they had that and everyone was like, oh, there's all this science fiction out there. How didn't they think of that something that was cooler and better? And then it might have been like a week or not even two weeks. But then they came out with the logo, and everyone was like, that looks like Star Trek. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's unprofessional. I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then, you know, it was, it was kind of like a twofer, right? Like, the, it was, there was the name tape announcement, and then there was the seal that came out, uh, which does have, uh, you know... Uh, some resemblance to the Star Trek logo. Not, it's it's not yeah. identical, but, but like yeah. there were there were enough people that were. But like, the reality was they actually pulled that. If you look at them, right, and you look at the Aft Space Aft Space uh, Air Force Space Crest, um, it's actually a direct uh, pull mm-hmm. right from, which is uh, you know completely appropriate, right? Yeah. It shows the heritage and the roots of growing out of Aft Space and Air Force Space out of Colorado Springs, um, and the the emblem and the crest that they've been using, so. Uh, but uh, it definitely uh, created a more buzz on, on Twitter. I mean, is Aspace going to stick around a little bit in the Air Force? Like, we, we always get into this, like, why different organizations, like, have, like, cross abilities. And, like, some of that goes back to before the joint voice was as joint as it is. But for something like this, when you're, you're pulling a section out of a service and making it its own, to what extent is the Air Force going to stay in that space? Like, or is it just going to be, like, across the halls of Space Force guys and we're sitting in this office? Yeah, so I mean that's uh, that's definitely uh, one of the concerns that you that you see out there uh, right now is the identity of Space Force and that culture. Um, clearly, there was you know you know in December to January you had Aft Space that you know same building, same folks working there. Suddenly they're in the Space Force, right? Uh, but um, I think over time that culture and that identity um, will develop. You'll always have you'll have just a, as in other joint type commands, you're going to have an Air Force component of that command, um, and then um, I, I don't want to speculate, you know, as far as the formulation what the organization is looking like, because that's actually occurring as we speak. You know, the policy formulation, structure, number of personnel, and all that. But um, one would probably anticipate that you will have different components for the functions or domains, similar to other joint, um, you know, joint units, and that Aft Space will just continue on in its identity down the road there but um, one will always you know there'll probably uh, be folks that will be detailed and or transferred as they work their way through what the the end strength of aft space is actually going to excuse me um, space force is actually going to look like i am i'm sure there's some similarities between when uh marine force recon went through that shift to marine uh, special operations and then like you had those two groups and like you know they were trying to create separate identities and like manning issues and so forth but i'm sure they'll, they'll figure it out eventually uh, big question on mill Twitter. What's more important, armor or public affairs? <laughs> I actually know what you're talking about. Like, see, <laughs> no hashtag, oh, it's, it's a whole thing. Hashtag mill Twitter, right? <laughs> um, it's this, uh, I, I, really, I, this is just my opinion. I, it just has to do, the, you know, the trending uh, there, I think, has to do with, you know, the entities that, that play in that space, right? That compete, right? You've right. got this subset of armor folks who uh, do a lot of uh, tweeting, uh, as well as a lot of the public affairs folks who, uh, who are also in that space uh, for obvious reasons, right? Um, and it just seems a, a back and forth uh, between them, exchanges uh, that are, are definitely uh, interesting to, to watch. I think, I think it's interesting. So 
obviously the PAO types have figured out that we can use information as a weapon system to, to, uh, to get a desired effect. The problem is, is that usually we want those weapon systems to be pointed out of the circle, not in the circle. And they may find that the, uh, the Arbor branch is quite proud of their heritage and, and have very strong feelings of uh, which one is more important. Oh, absolutely. I've never met an armor officer who wasn't like, when you brought up like, oh, everyone talks about how uh, you know the Gulf War is the last big tank battle. Like, mm, it's coming back. <laughs> We're still important. Even though it's all combined arms, it's still cool. <laughs> they still have their same boots. Maybe they, they, have, they have special boots. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the armor folks don't know that they're being used by the uh, public affairs folks in, uh, in their research. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is like a pretty, well, I think it's pretty easy one, but I just say, uh, Band of Brothers or Generation Kill? What's better? Well, I haven't seen Generation Kill. What? I know. So I guess, man, obviously there's a gap in my uh, professional military. <laughs> <laughs> but but I would what I would say is, as a professional officer, I think that we have, personally, I've always had this connection of, like, we're the next generation. We continue to make sure that our professional army moves forward. And to me, then Band of Brothers is always something that we kind of, you know, put on that pedestal. I mean... You know, there was a task force band of brothers in Iraq in 0506 when the 101st, I think it was 0506, when the 101st deployed. So there is a legacy and a pride that is associated with that. So only by true default, because obviously I haven't, I haven't, I need to, you know, obviously probably do a little more uh, time watching, watching, catching up on some DVDs. But um, on that one, I would, I would come into the uh, task force or the band of brothers. There's no wrong answers here, Joe. I know, but yeah, <laughs> so I'll, I'll I'll just say I'd go with Band of Brothers and uh, you know all, all day long, right? Because the Greatest Generation, uh, you know who uh, who would want to be part of you know storming the Eagles' nest, right? And uh, you know having uh, um, participating in that. So uh, for me, Band of Brothers. I mean, if you think of the idea of you know we we have evolved from a one year deployment cycle, which mm-hmm. seems like an eternity, to a nine month, and then we think back to when the greatest generation was like, you're going to deploy and you'll come home when the war's over. And then you have these historical units, these legacy units that from the invasion of Northern course to France, fighting all the way to the Eagle's Nest, those are heroes. And so so in that regard, I think that's probably why, you know, we just kind of all, as we kind of aspire, have more of that connection at least. But but don't forget, we're older officers now. (laughs) And, 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 you know, maybe you'll get a little different... um, uh, review or input from some of our some of our younger officers. No, I mean, I mean, I don't know how many times I've watched Band of Brothers. You know, I mean, I'm an airborne guy myself, and while my unit history was not in uh, Operation Overlord like we did Operation Torch, fought through Northern Africa, went through Sicily, and, and so forth. Um, it's uh, it's it's great. I will say though, I, I am also a big fan of Generation Kill. Uh, it, I, I think it captures the the current experience a little bit more likely, even though it is even though it is Marines yeah. and like. You know, two thousand three. Uh, it's definitely, it's definitely worth a watch, and I, I think it's, it's, it's very entertaining as well. Uh, and yeah, last question here. Uh, what's the last book you read, or if, you know, it's all like work stuff? Or what's a book you would recommend uh, to our listeners? I guess you can cut out Band of Brothers and Generation Kill from that, though. <laughs> um, for for me, the last book I read uh, was the the Willpower Instinct. Um, and that was specifically related to a- academic to my uh, research project, but um, I would still recommend it. Uh, very, very powerful book um, on uh, the effect, uh, the physiological connection between uh, both uh, physical and mental connection that willpower has.
has uh, both on your behavior and your decision making. And uh, I, I thought it was pretty pretty powerful book. I you know um, one of the things about the War College I will say is like the idea of reading full books right now has been a little more different, <laughs> like similar to your grad school experience. But one of the last books I one last book I truly resonated read was um, by Rosa Brooks about how everything became more and more became everything. Or if I have that title inverted, but but the idea being is is that as we've looked at our American national power, how military has become this default and what are some of the challenges with that and how do we end up either using or misusing it? One, I found, I mean, she's obviously a, a very uh, astute writer and, and, and this is an area that she's focused in. But I also think it's interesting because the parts of the book that um, that I didn't always agree with, it's interesting to hear what that other counterpoint is or how they, they look at it and sometimes how then... You know, we self-reflect and go, okay, hey, we need to make sure that we're telling our story better as well, because that, you know, that, you know, Ms. Brooks worked in OSD. She was either a deputy assistant secretary of defense or an assistant secretary, of defense, so she's seen how it's worked at the strategic level, and that's her interpretation on certain things on that. And I just I found that that it was um, it, it was a well-written book, and, and, and when it makes you think and reflect, and you have a reaction, usually that's usually a sign of a good book. And to, to be honest with you, you know, I read a lot of military books, but I, the other ones like Duty, big fan of Robert Gates. I, I like to read things that are sometimes outside of military and then like just leadership at large. I mean, because it, it doesn't matter to me what organization in military otherwise, like you have to have quality leaders. You have to have quality people that help drive organizations. And, and when, when you find writers that talk about that, that's usually kind of things that I usually find myself focusing on. Oh, that's great. I, it's so hard for me not to go off on another tangent on that because, it, I mean, that's the that's the tool in the toolbox argument. And I think I think part of that is that, you know, as the military, you know, someone says jump, you say how high. So, like, yes, you can use the, the military can do these things. It's physically possible. But it's like, is that the most effective organization to do this and like policy makers need to know how to think of like should i use a screwdriver or should i use a hammer right now or, or so forth uh but we're not going to do that we're, we're approaching the end of our time here thank you so much for coming in about uh, both to talk here on the podcast and to uh they're, they're going to be giving a talk very shortly here in conjunction with um the world affairs council from pittsburgh and yeah um yeah thanks guys right. i really appreciate thanks, it thanks adam thanks appreciate for having it. us